You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to M Pavilion 2019, designed by Australian architect Glenn Market. My name is Jen Zielinska and I'm the public program manager here at M Pavilion. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the Yalakut Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yalakut Willem are part of the Boonwurrung, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. Sorry. Um, tonight we are delighted to be here hosting this special event with our construction partner, ACOM. ACOM have been an amazing partner for the engineering of M Pavilion which, despite its simplicity, is an incredibly complex structure. Each structural element has been crafted to create connections in the building that are both functionally supportive, yet remarkably elegant and required engineering genius. This is the flattest roof that the fabricator has ever made, and that was Glenn's design intention. But to enable it was incredibly difficult and would not have been possible without the expertise of ACOM's team. We're delighted to have ACOM on board with us working on next year's structure, which is completely different and brings with it yet another set of unique challenges. One of the many reasons we enjoy working with ACOM is their commitment to using engineering as a way to improve cities and reimagine public space. Tonight's event explores how Melbourne creates space, asking the questions, where is it found, who is it for, and how should it be used? The conversation will be hosted by Madeleine Eads Dorsey. Madeline is a senior project manager at ACOM and who has worked on some of the most significant cultural and sporting infrastructure projects in Melbourne, such as Melbourne Park, the MCG, Arts Centre Melbourne, and of course, Pran Square. I'll hand over to Madeline to introduce our panel. Thanks, Jen. <laughs> Thank you, M Pavilion, for providing this amazing, sorry, amazing public open space for the event tonight. And I'd like to give a special shout out to Nigel Burden, who is from ACOM, who did the structural design um, for this year's pavilion. So well done, Nigel. <laughs> um, thank you all for coming. I'd like to recognize the custodians of the land on which we meet tonight, the Boonarung and the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay my sincere respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Without a full and respectful recognition for the society that took care of this land before us, current society will not be able to fully respect the value of caring for it in the future. First, I'll introduce myself. As Jen said, I'm a senior project manager at ACOM, but for the past four years, I've had the privilege and sometimes the curse of being the project manager for Paran Square for the city of Stonington. When I heard that ACOM had the opportunity to host an event at M Pavilion, I thought it would be an amazing opportunity to talk about Paran Square and public open space. The timing really could not be any better. This, is, this week is a pivotal moment for the city of Stonington, which just had the grand opening of Paran Square on Sunday. The space is now open to the public and is now in the hands of the owner and the operator and not the project team. I'll give you a bit of background about the project. Actually, first, has anyone um, been to Paran Square yet? No, is it? Oh, it's more than I thought. Okay, cool. <laughs> Not you, Tristan. <laughs> um, the project was originally conceived in the 1980s when Councillor John Chandler cast the vote against a shopping center on the site. He advocated and said that the parking lot be transformed into public space. Funding was finally confirmed five years ago, and Lyons won the design competition with its striking design four years ago. Two years ago, Kane, Kane Construction was appointed as the head contractor. The concept of tonight's event came from my wanting to reflect on the successes and challenges of the project, and also consider if this model should and could be used in other pockets of Melbourne. And I also wanted to discuss how public open space design, use, and management is changing. What better setting to have this conversation than here at M Pavilion, which is an exemplar of curated open space. <laughs> um, I also wanted to hear from the public and to hear what people wanted from public open space. So I look forward to speaking with you and hope you contribute to the conversation tonight. Tonight's topic will be discussed across two panels. The first will focus on Paran Square and the second will be a broader discussion on Melbourne public open space. 
There will be an opportunity to ask questions after each panel. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here to talk about Pran Square, we have Adrian Stanek, director from Lions. Adrian led the design team throughout design and construction and has over 25 years of industry experience as a lead designer in the practice. Specializing in, ma in managing large-scale, complex public, institutional, and commercial projects. Next to Adrian, we have Tim Fowler. Tim is here representing the landscape architects on the project. He is a senior associate at Aspect Studios. Tim has been leading the Paran Square project throughout the construction period. He has been with Aspect for five years, and during this time, his focus has been on design and advocacy for better public realm across transport, educational, and health projects. And from the city of Stonington, we have Matt Clare. Matt is the manager of Paran Square and Precinct and has managed the communications for the project from its inception through design and construction. Matt has a depth of experience delivering campaigns in the public sector. Matt has worked with the city of Stonington for close to six years and is in charge of sharing the square's success into the future. I'd like to start by discussing the initial goal and vision for the space. Matt, I'd like to hear from you first. Can you tell us a bit more about the history of how Paran Square came about and how the council finance and plan for the development? So um, the broader strategic intent of Paran Square came from two important areas. Firstly, the city of Stonington's chapel revision, which is a review of uh, chapel vision structure plan for the Chapel Street Activity Centre. Chapel revision aims to guide a range of important aspects including development, land use, movement, public realm, open space, strategic opportunities and economic and social planning and sustainability. And secondly, the city of Stonington has the second lowest amount of public open space per capita in Victoria. So we have a 20-year strategies for creating open space. The suburbs surrounding the square are expected to grow by around 12,500 new residents by 2036. So Pran Square is part of our response to this, Melbourne's largest urban parkland project. One of Australia's biggest and most innovative examples of mixed urban design expanding community facilities while increasing parking and boosting business around the precinct. Prairie Square will provide 10,000 square metres of public space, more than Federation Square. The Urban Renewal Project is one of the most significant additions to public space in inner city Melbourne and the biggest building project ever undertaken by the city of Stonington. Um, I thought it might be interesting, particularly for this audience, that um, Jill Garner, Victorian government architect, said Paran Square demonstrated how designers can help solve problems of parking and traffic by creating gathering places, breathing places. She went on to say that the design for Paran Square is a great model for change. It puts pedestrians first by locating cars underground, returning valuable open space to people. Imagine the open space Melburnians could gain if this model was more prevalent. So in terms of also answering um, your posed question, Madeline, about um, funding, Stonington does have an open space levy for new developments and uh, this did contribute to some of the funding. But at a time when citizen, uh, cynicism about all tiers of government is so high, um, I think this is uh, an example of local government taking a leadership role, being forward-thinking and investing over $60 million in an important community asset. Thanks, Matt. It is quite remarkable that the project was entirely funded from the council itself. Yeah. Um, Adrian, what initially attracted you to the project? What was your vision for this space? How did you want it to feel? And what were some of the key design considerations? It's okay. a lot. <laughs> a few questions there. Um, okay, maybe I'll start by answering what attracted us to the project. Firstly, I'm, I'm a local, so um, I've been, and as an architect, uh, I've been really living and breathing and thinking about this space for, for at least 20 years, so that was very attractive from that point of view. 
As a practice, uh, we are deeply interested in how we make contributions to public space. So this project um, really fit that aspect of um, the way we practice. Um, uh, recently, we've uh, well, we've been working in in the public architecture space for for 20 years and more. And um, more recently, uh, just completed a project, uh, Yagan Square in Perth, which was a full regeneration of a urban area uh, in Northbridge. And we really see that as um, this project is building on, on that sort of aspect of um, our thinking in architecture. So that was uh, also very attractive to us. Um, the other thing that's attractive to us uh, with or that attracted to us, attracted us to this project was um, the fact that we could put a multidisciplinary team together. Uh, architects, landscape architects, aspect um, artists, and various other special matter experts that we brought uh, to the project. So that was that was very much in our comfort zone, as well. Um, in terms of the vision for the project. Um, I guess uh, we would um, we would uh, offer a lot of credit to the council for having a, an incredibly fantastic aspirational brief for the project. So there was already a great vision for the project. I guess we looked at the project and we thought, well, there's um, a substantial challenge in the project in terms of, um, I guess, uh, building... Uh, so much area, two storeys of underground car park and 10,000 square metres of open space. So there was a significant challenge there. I guess the vision was really to how we could bring that together, particularly in the public space realm. Um, and we started thinking about um, the, the public space uh, breaking that 10,000 square metres down into uh, a series of nine differential spaces or different spaces for a, a multiplicity of experiences. So we thought about the corners uh, being very responsive to the local precincts in the, in the area. Uh, we thought about the edges or the wings as being spaces that could carry different types of modalities such as uh, terraces, a lawn, what we're calling a, a forest. It's not a forest yet, but it will be. Um, a sensory garden and a cafe. So those, all those spaces face in, into the square and then creating edges then that respond and engage with the street, offering spaces that connect pedestrians with the car park and uh, some opportunity spaces all around the edges to engage, uh, to engage the streets. And then finally, the, the ninth space is the central space of the square, which is, um, uh, I guess, the feature space that everything focuses in on. And I guess our concept was to create a space that was highly immersive, that when you walk into this space, uh, it was really about people, about community. It was really, it's really meant to be a space that is at the exclusion of cars. Cars are out of this space and it's really ostensibly at the exclusion of retail as well. It's a people-focused space. So we're very, uh, very set on the idea that it should be purely about people and about space. Um, and that um, in doing that, we tried to reinforce the desire lines across the site, the diagonal desire lines which connected each of the corners and create fantastic opportunities for people to explore within the, within the um, square itself. And of course, the other aspect of, um, I, I guess, our vision was to design a car park that was, uh, you know, that had considerable amenity um, that was connected as an underground car park connected with the exterior that brought natural light in and for, for purposes of um, passive surveillance as well. Yeah, I also think what people don't realise, which we were just talking about earlier, is that the, the first level of the car park is the opportunity to be repurposed someday with the way the light comes in and the floor-to-ceiling heights. So you've thought of everything. Yeah. Tim, um, what was the landscape vision for the square and how was it achieved? Um, as Adrian said, we were brought onto the project um, by lines um, and the vision was somewhat established, but uh, we work really close with, with lines to have an integrated vision. Um, and I think it was really important to have uh, a little bit of a critique on uh, the square and the park and looking at 
the idea of having a hybrid between a square and a park and what that kind of means in a contemporary sense. Um, and then having, as Adrian said, lots of different experiences that, um, you know, you're not limited to one space there, that it's not one experience, it, it serves multiple purposes. Um, and I think the topography that the structures create um, really offer those experiences. Um, yeah, so the, the vision was really for new experiences in, in a contemporary setting. There was more to your question, though, I think. Um, I, I think that the, <coughs> the vision was established and, and there was obviously challenges to the vision. I think the main, one of the main challenges was it's, it's technical a little bit, um, but how to get large chunks of landscape over structure and how to do that successfully was something that I think the team struggled with um, in the beginning um, and obviously we had to put a lot of work into doing that so that I guess we had to fight hard with engineers and with and with architects and with, I guess, the client to achieve that outcome. Um, but it, it was a success in the end. Um, and also dealing with movement. Um, obviously, we've talked about it being a priority for pedestrians. Um, but it is a program space. It's a square. Um, and we had to allow for vehicles to be able to travel through that space, um, obviously, in a, in a managed condition. Um, but then once you introduce those types of issues into a public space, you start to, um, I guess, have discussions around um, what other things you can't do. Um, so that's a really important sort of, I guess, facet to the design is that centrally there's a, there's a, a movement corridor for that to exist. Um, yeah. Yeah, I never want to see a bollard ever again <laughs> after well, working on this project. It's, it's an interesting... <laughs> It is an interesting point, actually, because <clears throat> I think it was during the design process or after the design process had practically finished and we were then working on upgrading the streets around the square. So initially the project actually started with just the square and then the council decided um, to also upgrade the street. So that, that body of work was brought in at a later stage, <clears throat> which I think was a great vision for the council because it not only, I guess, stopped scope at the edges but it really sort of connected right into the external areas and, um, and meant that the, although it was a lot of work, um, it meant that the streets were upgraded as well and that um, connection was, was threaded through further. Um, but we did go through a long process about um, looking at those kind of issues um, and it was a real challenge and it's something that I think as designers we need to be really aware of how to um, address that issue in a really thoughtful way because we've seen the outcomes um, of bad design of bollards um, and we'd like to see better outcomes, I guess. I was just thinking there, Madeline, maybe there was a bit of scope creep in one respect, but it was about bit. being opportunistic to actually make the most of the um, work that was going into the square to be able to actually upgrade the surrounding um, footpaths and streets to actually... Um, not only get the improvements that we've been able to get, but also then make it that uh, capacity to get the full realisation of the, the architectural design of the square itself. Um, and there's further things that Council's actually done to actually, if you know that area well, to actually punch through from where uh, Pran Square exists through to Grattan Gardens and to Greville Street. So there's a lot of different elements that we're doing to try and tie into that open space concept. Matt, um, a risk that we had on the risk register from day one was the risk of the space becoming a white elephant, that it would be too difficult to maintain or that there wouldn't be enough activity and people wouldn't use it. What is council doing now to mitigate that risk? Um, so that brings up the question around bollards and bollard removal, <laughs> which has been interesting over the last few weeks. But um, Council's vision is that the square will drive the uh, cultural and economic revitalisation of the area. And a lot of people would have heard about Chapel Street and the ebbs and flows of that area. So our plan is to be hosting community events and attracting visitors from far and wide. We have a strong activation program to involve the community. So um, Actually, they're up at the desk and around, and I've got plenty uh, for you to see, but we've just launched our uh, Pran Square Summer Series of activation and programming with a mixture of activities to appeal to a wide range of audiences. 
So I'll give you a little bit of a taste of them. Um, Family-friendly, sustainability-focused craft activities called paper trees. And um, I don't know if you saw them last night, Adrian, but I certainly did when I walked through the square last night and saw people using it and seeing the, the lovely paper trees um, throughout the square at all different junctures. And we have artists that have been engaged to create striking street art. Under the banner of Pran Square Live, we have free live music sessions each Thursday evening, and that's actually starting tonight with an Ethiopian band. Um, called Sunday in the Square, we have a weekly dose of emerging and established music artists enabling, enabling people to relax and enjoy the square on Sundays. We're also doing a range of health and wellbeing sessions under the banner of Active Stonington. So for uh, brevity, I won't go into all of the different fascinating elements to the digital art piece that we've got called the pipes, which are the blue poles, if you've been there, by Bruce Ramus. Um, but they can also be curated by the community. So this will form another really important element of the activation that we have planned. So Council's long-term vision for the square is it, um, to become an artistic, creative and community-focused hub that engages the local community. Um, an impact study predicts that the square will attract, attract 112,500 visitors a year and increase uh, retail spending by $32 million. In terms of ongoing care, um, which was another part of your question, Madeline, we're enlisting a whole uh, range of uh, council departments that already look, look after a range of different assets to maintain it in the same way that we do. So um, that includes waste, maintenance, parks and gardens. And so there's a wide range of council uh, aspects that are involved in maintaining um, the wonderful asset that we have. Tim, what were some of the landscape design considerations in terms of maintenance and upkeep? I guess all of them. Um, <laughs> I guess, yes, you go through a process when you're designing a public space. It's, it's a long negotiation, obviously. It was a four-year sort of period um, that you have to consider every aspect of what you're doing and what the end uh, result of that will be, how it will be managed. Is it sort of robust enough for the public environment? So there's a lot of questions that are asked. Um, and the, the test really is um, put through, I guess, considering what you've done previously, what works in the public environment, what, what sort of your peers think um, and uh, how, how that might be judged through mechanisms of review and so forth. Um, but I think the, the robustness of the square is really important. Um, you know, there's a central heart that it is hard, and, but it has to be hard. Um, for all the pressures that would be placed on the square, from public events to daily life, there needs to be a quality um, to public space that reflects that ambition. Um, so I think we thought long and hard about um, how we would deal with that, and that's and, and creating a, a project that will live a long life is really important. Um, but we also want to have soft spaces and places you can relax and and. Um, and that's in there too. And obviously there's a really large lawn that you can roll down if you feel like it. But um, all those things come up um, in the sort of, I guess, discussion around maintenance and longevity. But I think the test will be um, from now on, really. I mean, it's, it's, it needs to be... It was quite... A, we, we opened the square on Sunday, obviously, and um, it was a, a funny feeling because it was up until that point that you weren't really... You know, you were in the project and now it's public, um, and it was a, a very strange emotional feeling to have it opened and be sort of, now it has to prove itself, um, which I think um, hopefully it will. Yeah. And um, Adrian, what do you hope it turns out to be like in 5, 10, 15 years? Um, I guess... Um, yeah. I guess the most important thing from our perspective would be that the square actually forms part of the sort of um, cultural um, psyche of the community, that it's actually found its way into the minds of the whole community and, you know, to the point that people, you know, think about taking their dog for a walk there, going there, 
on New Year's Eve. It's a place that the community wants to go to, whether it's to be to roll in the grass, to lie on the grass, to to sit on the sit on the terraces and sunbake and watch people go past or play in the play in the water fountains. That it it has all of these things that uh, attract the community. That there's a sort of um, you know the the square embodies the things that the community desires in a way, and you know given that the community hasn't had these sorts of amenities for a long time, it's uh, probably the most important thing from our perspective as architects and designers to have actually achieved that for the community and a space that will grow with the community, uh, a space that the community can actually. Um, you know, sort of treat as their own and, uh, and you know, sort of activate in their own way, I think is a really important thing. And obviously the other important aspect of um, the future is just that it actually stands the test of time through materiality, that the landscape uh, matures and establishes in its own unique way and becomes very much part of the square. Thank you. Yeah, I had somebody from the office email me photos this morning with their daughter playing in the in Perrin Square and she said that she was so happy to have it, you know, as her backyard and I thought, oh, you're gonna make memories there. It's so nice. So Can I just say Madeline, yeah. I was having a little chuckle when I heard Adrian say something about New Year's because um, as part of some of the renders that we had in the early days, there were pictures of fireworks and, and so forth. And I've had, I can't tell you how many meetings with Victoria Police to say, <laughs> we are not having a big right. New Year's Eve celebration as such. Maybe small. We can simulate them. We can simulate them. <laughs> 10,000 people. But they just go, yeah. but you've seen the pictures, you've seen those renders and it's like, it's okay. All right. Um, we'll open up. The floor to any questions? I think there's some microphones. Does anybody have any questions? Yes. Emma? I hope this isn't a controversial question because I'm going to be on the panel in a minute. But, um, uh, and I don't know if it's a question for Madeline or Matt. Um, in terms of the procurement, I'm interested at the comment that the landscape architect came on after the vision was established. So in terms of the brief, did you ask for an architect as part of the brief, or was it a multidisciplinary team from the outset? Um, I, I, want the, I want the client to answer it. I'm interested from a procurement perspective, and I am a landscape architect and urban designer, so I, I'm just really interested about that. Um, at the start of a project, how we collaborate so that we don't have to solve technical details later. Sorry, I, I might just jump in. Uh, w when we uh, put the uh, competition scheme together, it was done with a full multidisciplinary team. Right. So Aspect were on board at that time. So right from the genesis of the you know, original ideas, Aspect were with us, uh, including, the, including the remainder of the team. So it was from the start. I and think I think from a council perspective, um, we were very keen to see um, that kind of multidisciplinary um, approach taken. So, um, you know, definitely, yeah, that was something that we were looking to, to see happen. It was yeah. a design competition. Yeah. And uh, I think what I was referring to previously was that the broader vision was established. I was actually looking back through the file today to reminisce on the early musings of the concept and all the hand sketches and the workings that were done and it was really delightful to see just really a, a quick idea and what is now Can a Can you share project. those? I want to um, see. <laughs> not right now, but <laughs> I'm sure they're in a report somewhere. Um, but yeah, no, it was. It was, it, it was very much a collaborative process as it always is with clients. But um, yeah. Some other questions? Hi. Um, question to the panel as a whole. I'm, a, like Adrian, a local resident and architect. Now, noting the uh, Pran High School, Vertical High School, which is just around the corner, what other opportunities are there in Pran for reinventing these social assets, like Chapel Street, for a good start? <laughs> Leading question. <laughs> 
Well, obviously, this is um, going to sound very council-y, but we've <laughs> been doing a lot of work to revitalise the area. If you uh, think about the work that we've done on Greville Street, um, the work that we've done in uh, redeveloping Grattan Gardens um, by actually then doing the um, punch-through that I was talking about from Pran Square through to that area. So, um, you know, we've got a pretty good uh, plan in place to actually keep um, picking off different parts of that area to revitalise it. Did anyone else want to add to that? <laughs> I, was, I was hoping for something a bit bolder, because these are bold moves. The vertical school is bold. The, yeah. What you've done at the well, Grand Square is bold. Do you not think bold you're, moves, you're, uh, you've set a precedent there? Well, um, I, I think um, Pran Square is, as I've said before, one of the biggest and most... You know, well, it's the biggest project we've ever done. So if you're looking for us to actually pick off the next biggest one, um, I'll talk to councillors about that. <laughs> but it's controversial enough in some senses. And um, I've been the manager of communications actually for most of the time and only recently been the manager of Pran Square. And I can attest to the um, controversial nature of it. Um, so in that sense, it might be a leading question, but I'm not sure if there's an appetite to take on something quite this big. Uh, in a hurry. Doesn't mean that we're sitting, sitting idly by, um, you know, we're working very hard on a whole range of different elements to that area, but I'm not sure that we'll find another 60 something million dollars in a hurry. <laughs> okay, I think we have time for one more. Hi. Um I'm graduating soon as an urban designer, so this is more a question about in the early stages of the project. And I just get fascinated when I went there last Sunday. And I was first driven by the idea of actually how, from the beginning, you start looking the city as a looking the city as a way of uh, searching for capacities, spaces that are, can lead to something that lead into a community benefit in the way. So how actually do you find the process to um, look to places that are underutilized or parking lots or buildings that probably uh, neglected to that area and find this vision to actually find a capacity in those spaces to become greater opportunities for community. Um, and the other question that's aligning with it is actually what is happening after from the planning point of view, how you're going to address the line uses around the area and how you think it will imply in the ground level and in the upper level um, values and how much space for local tenancy will be um, in the area. I think the first part of your question is a question that I have actually for the next panel um, of if this model <laughs> of finding underutilized spaces can be applied in other pockets of Melbourne is the exact question I had in my own mind when working on this project. Um, so I'll save that one, but if, if you want to answer about the tendencies and the, the uplift there. Well, um, I could say just quickly in relation to other parts of that particular area in terms of from a council perspective, we're looking, particularly I mentioned about our strategies for create, creating open space. So we're looking at lots of different opportunities where the streets that can be closed and pedestrianised, um, including King Street. Um, in that area, if you know that area. And we're looking at lots of different opportunities across the whole municipality actually to create open space. Um, in terms of um, the second part of your question around, um, was it linked to the tenancies? Um, we're looking at ways to actually um, involve the community and activate the space so that it is a space that's living and breathing community. That's the whole intention of it. Okay. So thank you to our panellists. I'd like to thank Mike Clear from the City of Stonington, Tim Fowler from Aspect Studios, and Adrian Stanek from Lions Architects. So, um, so now we'll move to the second panel. If, if anybody is tired of standing, there are some seats here. You can come and take a seat. I'll just say quickly, Madeline, there's um, two documents here if people are interested up at the desk that have detailed descriptions of Prant Square. Okay.
So now we'll move on to the broader discussion about public open space in Melbourne. Um, some of the questions that I had while working on Paran Square were, is this model going to be recreated in other pockets of Melbourne? Um, how does this project influence other projects? And will this project still be relevant in 50 years? So here to help me answer those questions tonight and others, we have Zach Savitkvik here in the middle, um, my colleague at ACOM. Zach leads the Melbourne Urban Design Team at ACOM and has worked on a range of public realm, open space, strategic and master planning projects in Melbourne, Australia and New Zealand. He is involved in master planning and design capacities for numerous transport projects across metropolitan Melbourne and has recently been working with the City of Melbourne and Victorian Planning Authority on an open space strategy for Arden. We also have Nicole Combs down the end, Associate Professor at Monash University and the Director of XYX Lab. Nicole leads national and international gender research, uh, research and gender in place. The XYX Lab's current projects are focused on the systems of gendered violence in cities, particularly understanding sexual harassment and public transport spaces. And finally, we have Emma Appleton, Acting General Manager of Strategy, Planning and Climate Change at the City of Melbourne. Emma is a landscape architect and urban designer who has worked in public leadership roles in the UK and Australia, shaping city policy and strategy with a focus on great design and sustainable outcomes in areas of transport, urban renewal, and planning. Emma is a past AILA Victoria president and Churchill Fellow. Zach, I'd like to start the discussion with you. As we've heard from the previous panel, Paran Square has, is a balancing act of square and park of planned and unplanned activities. Previously, public open space was clearly defined with a set of uses and activities. How do you think the very nature and definition of public open space is changing? Um, thanks, Mads. Um, that's a, it's a big question. Um, if there's one thing that's constant, it's constant change. And we're experiencing a lot of change in Melbourne. Um, that's not just from a development perspective, but cultural change, um, technology is changing society as well. Um, and something that we've seen um, time and again is that um, all of the public realm that we have, um, which includes the streets and, and the laneways, um, they're, being, they're being used in different ways as well. And if you like, there's a blurring that's occurring. Um, and there have been many partners to this. Um, um, usually, it's quite positive um, and there have been improved or increased open space benefits through transport projects, through the type of work that City of Melbourne's been doing for decades now in the CBD uh, and that other municipalities are picking up in terms of uh, changing and rejuvenating streets um, into places that now offer the type of spaces that uh, traditionally only parks um, would provide. Um, conversely, there's then additional pressure on traditional park spaces uh, as our population grows. And, um, and that's where these innovations around square, park, park, square, and a range of other uh, type of functions are, are being experimented. Um, and it's very commendable. I mean, it's very bold and it's, um, from a council perspective, it's, it can be very challenging to do something new. Um, and the previous panelists are right, you know, that the, the proof is still going to be in the pudding. It's, we're, we're about to embark on that journey now. Um, but it's going to be instructive. Um, and certainly you would hope that it's, it's better than a 51% mark. You know, there's going to be a lot more than that. And sure, there'll be new surprises that'll, that will change some of those aspects. Um, but it's extremely commendable. Um, we found, find in our own work that um, some of the conventions that have existed for a very long time in the way that we plan our city um, and, and develop it and extend it um, sometimes do get in the way of um, the innovations um, from the way that... Um, land uses are defined to um, strict codifying functions um, that um, include things like stormwater drainage and um, um, f uh, facilitating a whole range of other services. Um, 
we have a city that has, we're, we're fortunate to live in a city that has a lot of space compared to many other cities. Um, we just need to get um, busy with sharing it a lot better than we do. We are getting very creative though. I mean, look around you. This is a space that's been created out of thin air almost. Yeah, and, and this is part of the, um, you know, the ongoing management challenges, activation challenges. Um, where is public? Where is private? Um, how, do you, how do you share responsibility? How do you allow different types of uses? How do you get a liquor licence in a park? Um, you know, there's a whole range of questions um, that need to be answered. And because it is innovative, it probably needs to be answered again every single time you do it there's not really going to be a model that you just kind of adopt and apply to everything. I guess that's a good lead into your, a question for you Emma is how does the city of Melbourne define public open space and how does how do you figure out what is the right amount and where it should go? So we have an open space strategy am I doing all right with the mic? Um, which defines public um, open space as public land, which is devoted to the use by the public for recreation, uh, also for nature. Um, and so we're quite pure about how we would term public space, open space. Um, and encumbered land, we would not necessarily take on, in fact, we really fight to take, not to take that on in terms of the maintenance burden that that can potentially have. I guess what I would reinforce with that as well is about dem democracy in public open space. And I've really enjoyed tonight watching people canoodling out there and playing Santa volleyball, picnicking, climbing a tree. There's a lot of love going on over there um, <laughs> while we all watch, you know. Um, and so the ability for people to just be themselves in public open space, that it's inclusive. Um, and I think, you know, all the things that you're talking about, Adrian and Tim today, about what you're trying to achieve at Pran, I think, it, you know, that's all of those things, those values are really important in public space design, that people don't feel excluded or question whether it's public or private. Um, in terms of um, quantity, we, in the open space strategy, we set out um, square metre rates per head of population, and I can't remember what they are now, which is slightly embarrassing, but... My point being we are never going to achieve them because the population forecasts that we set at the time we did the open space strategy in 2012, um, we have exceeded them so dramatically that um, we really need to get very creative about how we go about public open space design. Uh, Melbourne's obviously very gifted with extraordinary public open spaces such as this big green parks around our CBD core, uh, very much so... Um, uh, around this way, not so much around to the top end, um, to the um, Docklands and um, up to the north. Um, that's what we'll be trying to fulfil over the next little while. There are some areas of the city that have extraordinary, this area has extraordinary public open space, as is East Melbourne. There are areas which uh, don't have as much as they should have. We've done a lot of incremental change through the city design team around taking back road space. But we really do have a, an issue because we do need some big scale parks and open spaces. It won't be enough to suit our populations in the future, which are both, you know, uh, living in high density living, so they don't have their back gardens necessarily, particularly in the inner city. Um, and also the diversity, multicultural diversity is expanding so dramatically. So the expectations of public space are really expanding. So the design challenge is massive. Um, but we're going to have to get really creative, particularly in the urban renewal areas. Zach's working on the Arden project um, about acquiring land, doing that with state, with local government to get big quantities. Um, we also need to think about our rivers and our, um, our urban waterways, which historically we've really seen them as um, arse ends of, um, uh, you know, the, back, the backwaters, whereas actually they're our most incredible asset, both culturally and environmentally. Um, we just got the Yarra River Birrarung strategy through Future Melbourne Committee last week, um, so please look at that. Um, we are going to revitalise the Yarra and bring back the ecology to the Yarra, the cultural history, the Aboriginal cultural history. We're going to activate in a way that we all feel incredibly proud of, rather than sort of incremental change that erodes the qualities of that place. Um, and there's some really big ideas coming through, like the Green Line, which will link Royal Park to the Bay. You know, and we've all got to work with our lo local neighbouring councils 
to really pull this off for our community. So I'm going to stop talking. No, that's great. Um, Nicole, Adrian noted that his hope for Paran Square is that it's a community space and that all people feel included and welcome. However, historically, <clears throat> parks and public spaces have been designed primarily for male-dominated sports and at a scale which does not promote passive surveillance. Even coming here tonight, I had a colleague question about where the bathrooms were and didn't want to walk into the park um, after dark. So through your research, um, what have you found that makes public spaces safe and equal? So the research that the XYX Lab is predominantly interested in the ways that um, gender inflects on public spaces and reciprocally how public spaces and urban spaces shape gender and gender identity. So our work is with um, women and girls but also with the LGBTI community which I think would be a major stakeholder of the park in Paran given the history of that site. And I think that one of the things that strikes me about the conversation and it should be incredibly positive tonight but um, is, I mean there's, there's a really simple piece of research that we've been working on which is that after the street, the park and public transport are the spaces where women are experiencing the most gender-based violence in city spaces. So, for example, we know that when a woman has an unsafe experience um, in a park, that 47% um, of women will not go back to that space again on her own, and actually 12% of women will never go back to that space again. And so we can be absolutely sure that women are going to be sex sexually harassed in that new square and experience gender violence in that square, as our LGBTIQ community. Our research at the moment is predominantly looking at women and girls. But, I mean, we, we really need to think very carefully about those kind of gendered experiences in public spaces. So, if we're thinking about safety, we have to be thinking about those research-driven, evidence-based aspects that we know are happening in urban spaces everywhere. It's, it's just a kind of fact. And so I'm kind of really interested in the ways that, um, and possibly the, the project did, but the ways that it engages with those community, communities. So we're talking about diversity, we're talking about inclusivity. Um, but, you know, where, are, where is that engagement process? So the work that the XYX Lab does is always about a kind of engagement with women and girls from the very beginning of the project. It's not um, traditionally what would happen where we kind of show the park plan, not suggesting this happened, but we show the park plan and then we say, well, what do you think? Do you like it? It's, that's actually not what we're talking about. We're talking about from the word go, what actually do women want to do in this place? Because I can guarantee you it's not the same as what men want to do in that space. Um, so these are kind of really crucial aspects to thinking about how we plan and make safe places. Uh, and yes, that kind of question about the toilet and the passive surveillance and um, if women are hanging out in that space, then women will feel safer. There are all these kind of critical things that we know will help facilitate safety. But ultimately, we also have to understand that there's going to be an element um, of lack of safety that is generally going to be experienced in that space until we have generations where we can see behaviour change and all that stuff that we're working towards. Thank you. Fantastic. Emma, from my recent experience on Paran Square, and I think Matt touched on this as well, I've experienced a disconnect between some of the council departments. During the design phase, we had a hard time getting buy-in from the management operations teams, and now they're unhappy with some of the design outcomes. What is the City of Melbourne doing to deal with this issue? Obviously, that would never happen at City of Melbourne. <laughs> I'm just joking. It happens all the time. Um, but what we have done just recently, actually, and the proof it will be in the pudding, um, we've had um, parks and um, open space uh, design, maintenance, etc., spread across the City of Melbourne, um, and we you know, have processes that we collaborate. But just recently, we've created a parks and city greening uh, branch bringing together the city strategy, like the open strategy people, so strategy heads, right through to the maintenance, all in one area. The idea behind that is very much about, we, we've got to have to, we, as we talked about before, have to have a transformational agenda. And to do that, we're going to have to do things differently, smarter, quicker, um, you know, make land work harder. Um, do a lot of things ecologically as well as you know, human and um, supporting biodiversity as well as human interaction, human engagement, human engagement, people engagement. Oh um, 
So we will see how that works. But I'm quite excited about it because I think when you get those conversations between the maintenance people who know how things work on the ground and know what costs money to maintain and those who um, you know, are thinking strategically about where public open space should be and what, what role that piece of public open space should have in the broader network in terms of functionality, in terms of the demographic it's going to support locally but also regionally. Um, when you get those conversations working well, you're going to save money, the parks will be better. Um, you know, you can just get so many efficiencies, but also great quality out of that. Again, the proof of being probably it's only been in action three weeks, um, uh, but I think it's going to be... And Dave Callow um, leads that team, and we've got Fiona Finlayson here, who leads the open space uh, team at the City of Melbourne. Uh, I think it's going to be a really great transformational agenda to watch over the next little while and see what comes of it. Zach, there's always um, uh, initiative in developments these days to include public open space. Do you think that the Pran Square model of turning a car park into a park could be replicated elsewhere in other forms? Well, there's plenty of spatial opportunity out there, but there's a lot of other um, barriers, if you like. Um, um, so what um, Pran Square's pulled off is actually quite enormous. Um, and I think the fact that it was kind of it first emerged back in the 80s and it's taken this long to sort of come to fruition, you know, that's testimony to that. Um, yeah, absolutely, there are other opportunities to do so, um, but it takes a lot of willpower and, um, you know, at individual advocates at the moment, organisationally, we're, we're still... Um, there are, there are many hurdles to bring all of those people together within one organisation, as uh, Emma's been um, attesting to. Um, but when you're talking about models where you need uh, perhaps some private investment um, and partnership uh, along with um, a local council, uh, state government involved in some way or state government agencies involved in some way in order to smooth out those wrinkles, those contractual obligations, um, uh, a whole host of things. Um, it is extremely complex. It takes a lot of time, but finding the will to actually overcome um, all of those hurdles is, I guess, maybe it's an Australian um, experience. Uh, we can take it easy a bit, a bit um, and there's usually not that much of a sense of urgency or an alignment in terms of urgency. Uh, so whilst uh, yeah, there's some will from Melbourne Water and the, the local council is sort of a little bit more urgent and a developer is there for five minutes and if this doesn't happen, they're out. Um, finding uh, ways to initiate and main, maintain that momentum um, for something that is, I would say, vastly more complex than pulling off a, a building project um, is still a pretty big challenge. Just wanted to say something about um, the urgency because uh, I mean we've declared a climate biodiversity crisis at the city of Melbourne as of many local governments uh, and state governments um, and the heat island all the things that you know that the world is heating up and the places that cool the city down are places like this street trees green roofs whatever but we're not doing enough and we've got to we've got to do more um, so I would really. Uh, push people to think how they may do more in their space in their, their private lives. Um, I would encourage developers to think of creatively about how they can make things greener and softer um, and just think about what we're supporting because if we don't get the urgency and we don't do it at scale, we're going to be very hot and um, that's going to have a lot of ramifications for a lot of things, in, including the health of places like this that can't cope under extreme heat. So the way we plant in spaces, um, uh, you know, the way we um, maintain them, we've got to get a lot smarter at that as well so we don't heat up too much too fast. Well, we'd support that, except um, Melbourne's not putting it on this week and we've kind of started to shiver already because it's uh, 7.30. <laughs> I think we can all agree that um, more open space is key to solving a lot of issues in society and climate. Um, Nicole, through your research, what have you found people actually want from those open spaces? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because 
I think about kind of parks and open spaces and I think that we we need to really think about how um, those spaces are often zones of exclusion for women and girls because they carry a whole lot of history with them. So if we think of the Eurydice Dixons or the Courtney Herons, women are carrying those stories with them all the time, as well as their own stories about what's happened to them in public spaces and the stories of their friends and girlfriends and family members. So it's kind of an interesting kind of moment, I think, for public open spaces and particularly parks. But then I'm kind of going to contradict myself by saying that also the thing I think that women want is... They, or the thing that we all want is... The reason that we love cities is because we go into them and we're not sure what's going to happen to us in them. So this kind of idea of risk is absolutely imperative to living in urban spaces um, and incredibly attractive about them. So how do we kind of balance that? How do we provide public spaces, parks, um, areas of openness that can balance that sense of risk-taking but also provide a sense of safety? And, and I don't have the answer to that, but I think as practitioners, as designers, as architects, as urban planners, as landscape architects, somehow we have to find what that relationship is and work really carefully to think about this idea of inclusion and diversity and exclusion and inclusion, which isn't kind of neat and perfect and a formula. But I think to what you said earlier, it's about asking women and involving them early on. And they might have some answers that you never thought of. Anyways, um, Okay, so any questions for the panel here? Um, undoubtedly, civic functions and, and public open space is probably uh, evidently doing the heavy lifting in some of the uh, yeah the open spaces that you, you're now seeing around the city. Um, I'm interested if there is a role or if there's a need to quickly um, create and and include more public spaces in the in the city. Is there a role for um, private spaces, um, and if there is, how do we go about actually including them in the public space that they feel inclusive? Um, and yeah, what are the challenges inherent, I guess, with um, private public open spaces? I'm so glad you asked that because I was speaking to colleagues about this today. Um, so privately open, what is it called, POPs, yeah. privately owned public spaces. Um, New York's got a long history of that. Um, and they've got a lot of guidelines. I've been told that there's a fantastic guidelines that if we're going to really engage with that as a city, we should really look at that very carefully. But what they do is they make rules around the public nature. They make rules about size, the amount of green open space, the inclusion, and they've got these big signs, and they're quite glorious. I mean, they say, this is a public park, and they have to do that because they're quite, they can be quite small, and they want to say to people, this is for you. Um, where, where I get a little worried about this, and there are a few examples in the city, and I'm not going to talk about which, where they are, but um, you know, if they're not on ground, if they're above the ground, and you have to go up a spiral staircase to get to them, and the <laughs> gates close at a certain time of night, um, that's not public open space. So um, you know, if, you, if you're having to shut it down, and for good reason, because you know, if it's not populated, it could be quite a frightening space, because it's not... Um, uh, on, on ground, um, you know, we've really got to think about both the perception of public open space and making sure people feel welcome, but also, and that's a design challenge, um, but it's also, um, again, defining the role and function of a public open space relative to its context. Um, and I see that fail quite often. Yeah. Um, I'll add something to that. Um, I think that there is a heritage, though, of even gated public spaces. Um, we're sitting at the edge of the Botanic Gardens and we know that at dusk the gates are closed. So there, there, are, um, there are examples of that and uh, the unnamed example um, that Emma's alluding to uh, is... It does have a lift. It, it, is, it is troubled with a range of design aspects which make it harder. Um, is there a role for the pri private sector or privately owned? Absolutely. Um, we're not very good at it. We haven't done much of it. Um, I'll, I'll go a step further and suggest that even, you know, not public space but communal open space in very large developments actually have a role as well. You know, there's 
we're talking about a network of things. So if you're talking about a development that's large enough and has a community, whether that's a working community or a residential community, what have you, those spaces also have a genuine role and they can supplement and augment what is provided for the whole of the public as well. So there are opportunities. Um, we perhaps... Um, um, how can I epitomise this? Um, often if you're working on a project, you try to solve world hunger through that single project. Picking the right project to do that well is, um, I guess, the first task. And um, there's certainly people like Emma and, and Matt who are there at the very start to try and provide some of that advocacy and guidance so that you don't pick off the first one and you get it spectacularly wrong and it'll never be tried on again. I was going to say, I think as well, if we want to engage in POPs, uh, we need to make the process for the private sector easy in terms of the legalities associated with it. We're doing a, a project and we're partnering with... Um, well, we're, actually, we're not partnering, but we're doing it alongside the Committee for Melbourne Future Focus Groups, uh, looking at how we can work with public, uh, private sites where there's a leftover bit and actually translate it into places of refuge. It's really challenging legally, and it's really challenging for private owners, you know, say a church, um, that might have a, a bit of space that's doing absolutely nothing, um, to, to translate that into something that can be used and bring public on site. There's liabilities, there's all sorts of things you've got to think through, but we need to get a very clear system about how that all works if it's going to, if it's going to happen. And it is a risk. I mean, even for councils, the amount of claims that come in through the door and every day. Um, and I know having worked on <laughs> Parade Square now. Um, is there any more questions? Um, this week we heard um, the Prime Minister of Iceland announce um, some health and wellbeing indicators for that country to balance out some of the GDP um, indicators that are used. And I was just wondering, given that we now have three countries, oh, probably four, uh, so we have Iceland, uh, Scotland, uh, New Zealand, and Bhutan, who've adopted health and wellbeing indicators to balance out some of the economic indicators. Do you see that there is a, a role in more leadership at a more national level to try and prioritise the value of public open space, given what we're seeing in terms of some of the um, data that's coming out and the value that it has in terms of health and wellbeing. And I should also add that I guess three of those figureheads were female um, who've instigated that as well. So interesting point there. Um, I might just start by saying that one of the most interesting things that has happened for the research that we've been doing in the XYX lab is we have undertaken a whole lot of work which we thought was predominantly about urban public spaces and about gendered experiences of urban public spaces. And in the 2018 government report, um, the, the project was used as a case study and they measured it against the sustainable development goals all around health. So this idea that um, women's experience of urban space and their access to it is a fundamentally a health issue. I mean, it, it became completely obvious to us, but actually it was equally a surprise. So the idea is, is that if you don't have access to urban space, then you actually don't have access to public life or education or the education of your children or healthcare um, or um, uh, the amount of work that you want. And so that's actually how our research is gaining traction with a whole lot of different stakeholders. It's all about health. So uh, the city, we've got indicators that are very broad. There are obviously economic ones, there are environmental ones, there are people city ones. Um, but we're looking at the moment at, at really interrogating those and sustainable development goals are one of the um, potential ways we might look at things. There are other um, indicators as well. I guess I would probably say that both local government and state government are probably where that's, that action's going to occur. In a similar way to the climate crisis, you know, the federal government aren't doing anything, right? But states are. Uh, local government is where it's at. We are all, you know, really working hard at a local level with our communities to make a difference in this space. 
Um, and the federal government, they're just not coming to the party, so maybe we've just got to forget about them and work more collectively between local and state, join up the states, join up local capital cities and see where we can get to. I mean, given the, the news today that um, the Prime Minister's uh, consolidating a number of departments, um, um, senior bureaucrats getting the chop, um, we, we've seen this pattern and the pattern's been there for quite a while from federal government. No, I'm not going to mention Trump. Sorry. We had a, this, we had a bet. This is going to be podcast, so I, I might be in trouble. Um, but, I mean, the nations that you mentioned, you know, they, they do, uh, given their size and where they sit within um, the global community, they almost have that, uh, they have the liberty to, to try that kind of innovative um, framework on, whereas larger economies like ours find it very difficult um, to make those decisions. It is certainly the states um, and local councils that um, have have the urgency. You know, they are more in touch with their local communities to to actually um, um, create a wave or movement of change um, and to highlight to uh, national leaders that this is important. I'd also just make an observation that um, you know, health and well-being is tied to community and, and anxiety and um, the world of social media adds to anxiety and creating a new public open space um, like Pran Square where people just enter it and they don't look at their phone to figure out where they're going and they just kind of follow the way that they think looks cool is, you know, maybe they realize it or they don't, but it's, it's good for them. <laughs> <laughs> and good for everyone else. Um, that's my little soapbox. But um, is it Instagrammable? Yes, I think it is. Because <laughs> that's what worries me. Yeah. We're designing now for the picture, and um, and this is not a criticism because I haven't been there. Um, but this is something I. Someone said to me the other day. Oh, it was so gram, and I was like, oh my god, I am so old, um, because I don't know what you're talking about. But then I looked at their Instagram and, oh, my goodness, then I got it. So I just think we've really got to, we've got to rise up and stop looking at our phones and stop taking the picture and start enjoying where we are whenever we're somewhere because it's just getting out of control. Here, here. <laughs> All right. So um, I guess just to wrap it up, what we've heard is that public space is ever important, um, especially in the denser the city gets and that women definitely need to be involved in the conversations from an early stage. And yeah, there's lots happening and lots more to come. <laughs> so I'd like to thank the panelists. I'd like to thank Nicole Combs from Monash and Zach from Zach Savitkovic from ACOM and Emma Appleton from City of Melbourne. And I'd like to thank M, M Pavilion for hosting this um, event tonight and allowing us to use such a beautiful public open space. And um, I'd also like to thank Rohini Singh who um, organized this event from AACOM. So thank you, Rohini. And I look forward to discussing these topics more with you over a drink or two. Thanks. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.